Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The ascent of Winston Churchill to power in 1940 is one of those turning points in history, a moment that set in motion a series of events that helped secure Allied victory in the Second World War. And so it's an epoch-defining moment that still affects us all around the world today. But why and how was Winston Churchill chosen to replace Neville Chamberlain? How did Churchill manage to defeat his greatest political rival, Lord Halifax? And what might have happened if Churchill hadn't been chosen to lead? Well, I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And to find answers to all these questions, I met up with Second World War historian, Professor John Buckley. John and I went deep underground for this one, to the Cabinet War Rooms, otherwise known as the Churchill War Rooms, under central London. Today, they're an amazing museum and well worth a visit. But during World War II, they were Britain's fortified seat of power, making them the ideal place to discuss the impact and the legacies of Winston Churchill. Enjoy. John, we are here in the Cabinet War Rooms, what's come to be known as the Churchill War Rooms due to their iconic role during the Second World War. But take us back to that pre-Churchill era, to that time when Chamberlain is in power. What is the mood in Parliament? What is the mood with the British people? It's one of those things that a lot of people forget that Chamberlain was Prime Minister for the first nine, ten months of the Second World War. We all seem to associate it with Churchill. Of course, Chamberlain's in charge, Churchill's just the First Lord of the Admiralty. But the mood really starts to turn with the Norwegian campaign. And there have been lots of questions about Chamberlain's leadership prior to that point, but it all starts to fall apart at that point. Which is interesting because Churchill, of course, is significantly implicated in the Norwegian campaign, but he manages to evade responsibility and others look worse than him. So Chamberlain starts to come into severe criticism in April of 1940. And lots of question marks about whether he's the right person to lead the country at that time uh, start to emerge. And when those personnel coming back from the Norwegian campaign start to talk about what's happened, how badly mishandled it's been, pressure starts to grow. And so there's a growing disillusionment with Chamberlain's leadership at the beginning of May of 1940. Does Churchill start to use this to his advantage? Does he use the failures in Norway as a bit of a crowbar to get himself in the right position? To a degree. I mean, he's a politician, so of course he's looking for the right moment and the right opportunity. But I think there are wider issues at play because at this stage, Churchill is not the clear successor to Chamberlain, and many others are vying for the position. There's talk of different people. But it's mainly about who is going to be the right person, who's the right personality. Chamberlain's still associated with appeasement and the policies and so on of the late 1930s and what that led to. Now, at this particular point in the war, they're looking for somebody who's got more of a dynamic grip 
Chamberlain's possibly not that person. Take us back to that moment in time when Chamberlain is being tarred with this brush of appeasement. He's been tricked by Hitler. He's a bit of a fool. Is that fair or is this somebody who is genuinely on a quest for peace, wants to avoid that horror of the First World War that he knows all too well? And people seem to forget that. You know, this is someone that has this not only in his living memory, but has an experience of this. Is it unfair that we paint Chamberlain as the great appeaser? It is to a degree because he was seeking a way of avoiding another conflict similar to the First World War. We can understand why that's the case, what he's trying to achieve. And now we look back on it as, in terms of appeasement and trying to do a deal as clearly the wrong policy. But we know that now at the time it was enormously popular. Keeping Britain out of the war or avoiding another war with Germany was hugely popular in Britain in the 1930s. And it's only really in the final few months when it becomes clear that the policy from Munich onwards has totally failed and that Germany's actually exploiting what they see as weakness that it all starts to unravel for him. But until that point, he's seen as somebody who's really kept Britain safe, emphasised peace, emphasised rebuilding and restructuring at home. Yes, there are voices dissenting in terms of foreign policy, but not that many. So it's not that clear until those final few months that everything he's worked for is going to fall apart over the next seven, eight, nine months. And it's easy in hindsight to say that he was duped, but some of the revisionist histories are starting to value Chamberlain's role during this period, that he gave Britain time to prepare. Is that a bit too much? Is that a bit too far? Or is there something in that? There's something in it. It's not as if Chamberlain and those around him didn't foresee that there's a possibility of war and put off any kind of idea of it. They did start to make some changes, and even from the time of Munich, there's a release of extra resources and funds to preparing an army potentially to go to the continent for the first time in the interwar period. Until 1938, it was never the intention for the British to deploy an army to the continent. So Chamberlain's behind that and others. He was nudged into it, but he goes along with it and sees the point of it. So preparations are made. He does, however, hope that Munich has taken the pressure off and that the likelihood of having to do that has gone. But he's aware enough that Britain has to make some preparations of the change in defence policy in terms of building fighter command and the use of what becomes radar and the observer stations. All of that is grown in that period. And Chamberlain is partly behind the release of money to do that, which is not to say that he wants to see the necessity of having to do that, but he sees that it might be possible in the future he will have to do it. So until the spring of 1939, he's made that investment. He still hopes it's going to be a way out of the war, any potential war. And it's only really from the spring of 39 to the realisation start to grow that whatever he's doing is not going to prevent a war. So there are many reasons why Chamberlain's position becomes untenable. But it's the truth of the matter that he just didn't have the right relationship with the United States. I mean, him and Roosevelt didn't particularly get on, did they? No, not at all. Um, Roosevelt had very dim views of Chamberlain and he hadn't really got on with him. He had an attitude, a perceived attitude of being condescending to the Americans as many British senior politicians did at the time. But interestingly, Roosevelt had a good relationship with Churchill and had built that relationship before the Second World War. And in the early months, he'd opened up a, a line of communication with Churchill. And that made an important contribution later in the war in a way that would not have happened with Chamberlain. But even in those first few months of the war, British policy was still to a degree based on the idea of growing a, a better relationship with America. Chamberlain probably wasn't the person to achieve that in the longer term, though. 
Were there any other options? Now, your new book, The Armchair General, allows us to be put into that hot seat, to have a look and to see what history might have been like had other people perhaps been in charge. Who were the other options if it hadn't been Churchill? The only other serious contender, I mean, others were talked about, there was even talk of Lloyd George making a comeback of all people, but the only other serious contender was Lord Halifax. Now, Halifax was the Foreign Secretary. He'd been a, a senior position of government for many years, and he was talked about because he was the most senior and well-respected and liked figure within the Conservative Party. He carried himself with great erudition, you know, he was a very, very positive person, clearly in charge, one of the kind of patrician, old-style Tory aristocrats. Yes, very much so. And that's how it was viewed at the time. You want somebody who's sensible, rational, and so on, who's going to take over. And he was very popular with the, in the Conservative Party, whereas, interestingly, Churchill was not. Churchill was more widely known, had a greater respect outside for all his against Nazism and against Hitler in the late 1930s, which Halifax had also started to recognise. He was not in favour of the Munich Agreement, so let's not paint him as a complete appeaser. But Churchill had this wider appeal. Halifax had the appeal, particularly with the Conservative Party. We have to bear in mind the Conservatives are the dominant party by some distance in the House of Commons in 1940. So when those question marks start to grow against Chamberlain's leadership, it's Halifax who seems the most likely option at that time. So why doesn't Halifax come to power? Does he not have the popularity with the British people? Do they think that he's akin to Chamberlain's policies? I don't think so much about it. It's more to do with these, the relationship within the Conservative Party. He has support there. So the Conservatives and Chamberlain think that the next person is going to be obviously someone from the Conservative Party because they the, they're the dominant party. And it's who will emerge from that process. It's kind of, it's not as it is now, we have elections and so on, it's just meetings in dark, smoke-filled rooms, and then somebody's chosen. So it's a different approach. So in Halifax's case, he has the backing of the Conservative Party. That's where his support lies. The reason, perhaps, and it is much mythologised, which is often with these cases, about a, a big meeting on the 9th of May, Chamberlain is still hopeful that he can continue as Prime Minister, but there's a growing body of opinion that maybe it's time for him to step aside. But there is a meeting on the 9th of May at 10 Downing Street where Churchill, Halifax, Chamberlain and the Chief Whip, David Marchison, always an important character in these decisions. And the offer is put, would Churchill serve under Halifax? And Churchill, according to Churchill, hesitates. He bites his tongue, doesn't say anything. There's an awkward silence and Halifax's nerve goes. And he says, well, maybe he's not the right person to take over Halifax because he sits in the House of Lords and it needs somebody with a different approach and a different idea. Maybe that could be Churchill. So that's the story that goes around that Churchill's refusal to back Halifax is the reason why Halifax decides to step aside and allow Churchill to become prime minister. Interestingly, not everybody who's at that meeting agrees that that's how it goes, but that's how it's recorded. Yeah, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that meeting. I can imagine it being a, a little bit more tense. What was the relationship like between Churchill and Halifax? Grudging respect. Okay. Grudging respect. It's not that Churchill disliked Halifax, who thought him uh, foolish, but he, he did believe his judgment at times was wrong about what was important and uh, understanding the mood of the nation or understanding what's the, the critical aspect of policy. Whereas Halifax had a, a greater command of detail and control and so on, whereas Churchill was much likely, more likely to go off in different directions, Halifax understood the specifics more. But Churchill's view was that at that particular moment, you needed somebody who saw the bigger picture and the longer term, unlike Halifax. But why 
Churchill. It's not like he, he obviously had a very long military career. He's somebody who had been in politics for a very long time. But his record wasn't exactly a stellar history of amazing military decisions. I'm going to mention Gallipoli. I'm going to mention the fact that he can't reopen the Dardanelles. The fact that the entire shipment of the world's grain from Russia and Ukraine, of course, a very pertinent thing to be talking about, can't get through. These are difficult times for Churchill. Does that legacy just not make him completely knock him out the um, running. It would have done in other circumstances, but as a, the most significant voice in the late 1930s arguing against appeasement and the threat that Hitler and the Nazis posed to the UK and to France, that's what carries him through. That was his voice? Yes. I mean, he'd worked very hard and lobbied long and hard about these issues. And the rest of the Conservative Party and the government, the, na the national government, were trying to talk him down and shut him up and so on. And Churchill was one of... There were others... But Churchill was the most significant voice arguing against that particular policy for greater rearmament, particularly in terms of air resources and so on, to prepare Britain for a potential war. So it was that. And interestingly, his back catalogue of mistakes and misjudgments and so lessons. on, of which is a few. Lessons, lessons, maybe, yes. Didn't work so much against him. Even those who were very suspicious of where he'd been previously in his politics, some of the decisions he's made, were willing to accept that at that particular moment, they needed to be put to one side. But it does highlight the fact that Churchill was not an obvious contender. The Labour Party, who were going to be, were going to be brought into a national government in 1940 in order to direct the war, were very suspicious. They, they certainly wanted Chamberlain to go, but they were more willing to go with Halifax. Churchill was a bit of a surprise to them. And there were real concerns, because Churchill had kind of break the general strike in 1926. He was known as an ardent anti-socialist and so on. He had particular views on the empire and so forth. Didn't make him very popular with the Labour Party. So Attlee, then leading the Labour Party, and Greenwood, who was the deputy leader, were quite suspicious of Churchill taking over. So there were misgivings there as it's well. It's enormous power given to one man. Yes, I mean, that's one of the key points in this, that. Chamberlain had, prior to May 1940, run a war cabinet, which was a larger war cabinet, of which the Organisation of the Defence of the UK and the war effort was only one part. When Churchill takes over, he narrows it all down and brings it down to a much smaller grouping of just five or six people. Key allies? The chiefs. Not always. No, no. It, I mean, it's partly that, and he's very shrewd and he manipulates. Well, he didn't that like to be committee. disagreed with, did he? There was only a few generals that could really tell him what for. Yes, and that brings him into big conflict with people like Jack Dill, who becomes the Chief of the Imperial General Staff. Very important in May 1940, he's a much more bullish character, much more optimistic than his predecessor. And when he becomes Chief of the Imperial General Staff on the 26th, 27th of May, it's an important change in terms of the attitude of the Chiefs of Staff. But Churchill's position when he takes over is not so secure. So although he wants to be the controlling and dominant voice in what he creates in this, this defence committee. He cannot do it without the consent of Halifax and Chamberlain, who have to stay in this group. So Halifax is retained, Chamberlain is retained because he needs Conservative Party. Because oddly, Churchill becomes the Prime Minister, but he's not also the leader of the Conservative Party at that time. So he needs Halifax and Chamberlain on side. So he's got Attlee and Greenwood, interesting from the Labour Party, who are more supportive of Churchill in some of these meetings than the Conservatives. It's one of the great ironies of history that for many in the Tory party, Churchill is a great iconic Conservative Party figure. Yet in 1940, 
most Conservatives really don't trust him at all. He's walked once by crossing the floor to go to the Liberals, and then he came back again. He's got a track record of going in all directions. They really don't trust him. So the greatest body of dissent or unwillingness to believe that Churchill was the right person to take over was probably in the Conservative Party. They really wanted Halifax. Sounds to me like he's a, a canny and cunning political mover who gets what he wants by making difficult decisions. And as we, we sit here in the Churchill war rooms, as they're now called, is it those sort of characteristics that made him the perfect person to lead Britain through the war? Yes, and I think the meetings that took place in the War Cabinet meetings, Defence Committee meetings in late May 1940 capture that essence of how those decisions were taken and Churchill's role in them. He's often portrayed and seen as being this bulldog spirit character and we fight on to the end, come up to May, and it's all about the spirit and determination. There's much more going on. He's a much shrewder, as you say, canny political operator. And some of the manoeuvrings that take place in those meetings on the 26th, 27th, 28th of May, where the, the idea of perhaps Britain not carrying on with the war, Churchill is very clever at how he manipulates, brings people onto that defence committee, outmanoeuvres Halifax and so on. So what we see there is a very sharp political figure. But the bigger picture is what's impressive. It's not just about the bulldog spirit. Churchill's vision of where Britain goes from the, in the summer of 1940, how the war might play out, is crucially important because there's a bigger idea that whatever deal you might do with Germany, how Britain might get out of the war in, in 1940, will not solve anything. Ultimately, he argues and believes that Britain has many of the, the key cards, even after the fall of France, the, the tacit and economic support of America, even before the Americans come into the war. And by tapping those resources into the empire and the Commonwealth, Britain still has many cards still to play. Just because France is out of the war does not mean the game's over. And therefore, Britain's best option, strategically and politically, is to carry on fighting. You're not going to get a better deal out of, uh, by coming to terms with Germany in the summer of 1940. And that's kind of interesting. It's not just about bulldog spirit and determination. There's more to it than that. On Medieval from History Hit, we set out to solve the biggest mysteries of the Middle Ages. So many of these travellers who went out looking for Prester John, what did they think they were hearing? We explore cutting-edge research. Genetic signatures found in present-day Jewish populations were shared by the genetic ancestries we found. From everyday life to dynasty-shattering events. It's a time when all the major Viking raids have started, which as Christians they think of as vengeance from heaven and reveal the answers to centuries-old riddles. I stand up straight in a bed, I'm hairy at my base, and I make the ladies cry. The solution is an onion. I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. Every Tuesday and Saturday, we'll explore some of the biggest stories, the greatest mysteries, and latest research. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So this period in time is what we call Britain's darkest hour. And Churchill decides that we're going to fight on, and that's with Britain most certainly under threat. Operation Sea Lion is still in play, Hitler's plans to invade Britain. What are Churchill's options that are before him? What could he have done to keep Britain in the war effort? At the, the time when key choices are made about whether Britain should carry on fighting or not, the backdrop is the beginnings of the Dunkirk evacuation. Everything's gone horribly wrong on the continent. The French are trying to get out of the war. Churchill's negotiating with Paul Rayner. So what is the next step? How can France get out of the war? So what are Britain's options at that time? And that's really the crux of those debates at that time. Halifax brings the idea that perhaps it's gone so badly wrong that Britain needs to cut its losses, go with what they can secure and, and get out of the peace. war. And do some kind of deal. Because we know that Germany goes on then to defeat France and it takes many more weeks and it's a really bitter fight in France. It's played down a lot in the UK and there's the idea that the French should throw the towel in 1940. Clearly not the case. They fight bitterly to keep the Germans out. Something like 90,000 French soldiers die in the campaign in 1940. It's often the case that people say, you know, France falls in six weeks, they must not have put up a fight. But the fact of the matter is, is that Blitzkrieg was just so powerful and no one expected it that the French fell much, I expect, like many nations would have at that period in time. Yes, and the French are still fighting whilst these decisions are being made. And there's a debate, do you keep France in the war? Do you let them drop out of the war? What kind of deal can the French get out of it? But also there's an element that the success of the German attack in the West has caught everybody by surprise, the Germans themselves. And so how you assess that situation and the pressures that were playing at that time, the different information coming in, how people in late May in the cabinet war rooms are putting the pieces together to say, what are the best options? It's all happening with repeated meetings, three meetings a day of the Defence Committee and the War Cabinet being drawn in, repeatedly having to reinvent the situation because things are changing. It's a really dynamic atmosphere, but one in which the future of Britain's role in the war and perhaps the West's role in the war is being played out. How does France get out of the war? Can Britain survive? And a key moment comes when the Chiefs of Staff produce a paper, it's a British cabinet decision, it's all about papers and documents and meetings course, and things, yeah. committees, but they produce a paper in which they state that Germany will, could well struggle to get control of the airspace over the UK because the RF is relatively strong in terms of defence and so forth, and that the Royal Navy is a major barrier to anything the Germans might want to do. So that means that the next few months, it is quite possible that Britain would be able to survive even if France surrenders. What happens after that is still open to question. 
and bringing the Americans into the war and some kind of support of some kind from the wider global perspective will be critically important. But it's not the end of the game. And Churchill uses this to start to draw the war cabinet and the defence committee over to his way of thinking. And the waverer, possibly the most important figure in all this still, curiously, is Chamberlain. Halifax and Churchill are at loggerheads. Halifax is trying to pursue the idea of getting Britain out of the war, doing some kind of deal perhaps, negotiating through the Italians, and he tries to open up negotiations with them to see what kind of deal could be arrived at. Churchill wants to block it. He said any kind of sign of that will show us to be weak and bring down the chances of continuing the war in any kind of meaningful way. So he wants to block it all completely. Chamberlain's the person floating between those two positions. And how you persuade Chamberlain of the long-term prospects of Britain. That's a critical point in those decisions. And Halifax realises the game's up by the 28th of May in these decisions, these discussions, because Chamberlain starts to move over to Churchill. Churchill persuades him, Athley and Greenwood. And one of the other characters that's brought in another shrewd move by Churchill is that he brings into some of those discussions Archie Sinclair, the head of the Liberals. Now, the Liberals are not a major political force by this time, but they, they still hold considerable weight of support. Sinclair is a big supporter of Churchill. They can't get on very well, and Sinclair is a very dynamic character, very well respected and well known. I was going to say, he is a very well respected figure. Yes, yes. absolutely. So his opinion matters. Yes, absolutely. And bringing him into those Defence Committee meetings, the crucial moment, tilts the balance once more in Churchill's favour. So Halifax finds himself becoming more and more isolated. The problem Churchill has, and again, is something that says a good deal about his abilities, he cannot let Halifax resign. If Halifax resigns, because Churchill blocks him from trying to pursue these alternative policies and potentially looking at deals and things, and Halifax feels as though he's merely been sidelined, he could resign, and he'll, he could take a significant body of support from the Conservative Party with him. Chamberlain might resign as well. Then the government falls, so it's a disaster scenario. So Churchill's in this very delicate position. He's got to be able to keep Chamberlain and Halifax in the Cabinet, but not actually let them get what Halifax wants. So. He has to use the weight of the political opinion, both in the defence cabinet, war cabinet, and then the wider war cabinet. One of the shrewdest moves he makes is that in the later stages of these discussions, this small group, he goes out there to the wider war cabinet where he has bigger support and calls upon them and they all rally behind the Churchillian view that he must carry on the war. And he takes that back into the defence committee meetings and Halifax folds at that point and sees that there is no prospect. Uh, being able to push this, and he doesn't resign. He stays in it because he sees that the weight of opinion both within the Defence Committee and the wider war cabinet is to carry on with the war. It's easy for us to sit here and to praise Churchill and to say that was the right decision. I mean, in many ways, Britain certainly won the war. But what would have peace looked like at that time. What If we can go into a counterfactual, say Halifax had got his own way and Hitler had agreed for peace with Britain, what would Britain's place have been in the world? How would the world have been divided? How would have Europe been divided? Obviously, it's always very difficult to play counterfactual games, but that's kind of the idea. Put yourself in those positions, think about the outcomes, it allows you to reflect upon the actual choice that was made and why it's important or interesting that it plays out in that way. The alternatives actually are, are worse. However, bad Britain's position is in 1940, the alternatives don't really play out particularly well. If Halifax has become prime minister, for example, what choices would he have made? It would have been a wider war cabinet, people like Sam Hoare 
and John Simon would have still been in the, the cabinet and they were appeasers and didn't get on with Churchill at all. There could have been a greater move for potentially doing a deal with Italy and Germany at that point, or Germany through Italy. The consequence of that, well, France would still probably have been partitioned. Britain would probably have had to give up some territorial concessions to Italy. There's talk of them giving up Malta and Gibraltar, possibly Egypt and so forth, in order to get Italy to act as these arbitrators, to get Germany to call. So giving call up Malta, Gibraltar and Egypt to Italy? Yes. That, which would have lined in with Mussolini's plans, who wanted to recreate the Roman Empire. Yes, I mean, that's what Italy is about. Italy was willing to act as an honest broker, in inverted commas, only if the British and the French bought them off. And the French hoped it would have prevented a complete German occupation of France, or any kind of German occupation of France. And the British, it would have meant that they could do a deal and stop the war in the West before everything really fell apart. And it's still a threat. There's still a perception that the Germans could strike at Britain. So you can see the environment in which this thinking is taking place. Halifax's view and others was that he didn't necessarily agree that that would be what would play out, but at least explore the possibility of using such negotiations to bring that stage of the war to an end. But it doesn't look good. What ends up here is that France effectively is destroyed as a, a major great power. Britain is emasculated. They can't really do a great deal. And it destroys credibility. Imagine your Roosevelt looking at the situation in Europe. The French have folded. The British have done a deal. Why would you back the British in the future? They're not a good bet to invest in or to defence resources, to bolster them in any kind of way. However much you see Germany and, and Hitler as a much greater threat, you're not going to control them with the British if the British do a deal in the summer of 1940. So there are all sorts of issues at play here which weaken the idea that a deal would have been a good outcome. One of the outcomes, however, which, which is interesting, is that you carry on fighting through the summer of 1940. You survive the Battle of Britain and the U-boat offence in the Battle of the Atlantic in 4041. And this is an idea put forward by the infamous politician historian Alan Clark many years ago, that Britain's best moment to get out of the war would have been in the spring of 1941. That that would be a position of real strength. You demonstrated that the Germany couldn't invade and occupy Britain. Right. That Britain wasn't going to be defeated. Had leverage. Yes, exactly. Okay. And that would be the moment to get something out. I don't know, greater freedom for France or something of that ilk. But again, all of this, either a deal in the summer of 1940, in the spring of 1941, or something around that, seriously weakens Britain's standing in the wider world and the chance of defeating Hitler and Nazism in the longer term. And Churchill's perspective on that is probably sharper because he sees that ultimately it has to be dealt with. There is no evading the responsibility of the West or, or whoever it may be, a grander alliance, in defeating Germany. That's the ultimate goal. Anything which gets in the way of that will ultimately undermine any kind of deal. You know, if you don't stick to that principle, there's nothing which would stick in the longer term. So any deal is not worth the paper it's written on. You can't trust the Germans. There was also the talk of the anti-communists in Britain saying, that actually, you want Germany to attack the Soviet Union and destroy the Soviet Union because that's a greater threat. And there's still that major thinking in the UK and in the West. But of course, Germany defeats the Soviet Union, get rid of communism, you get a hugely strengthened Nazi Germany, which in many ways represents a much greater threat to Britain and France or the United States in the longer term. So Churchill's ability to see that that's what's at stake in the summer of 1940, the next few months, 
is what makes him so important. The trouble is, John, is that Britain is still in a weak position at this moment in time, and it looks weak to the United States. So how does Churchill, once he has consolidated power, how does he get Britain out of its darkest hour? You've got to think that as we move through 1940 and 1941, he sat here in this very building with bombs going off ahead. And you can paint it as much as you like that there's a blitz spirit, but Britain is under threat. So how does Churchill get us out of this? Churchill provides surety of purpose to those around him and he's, he's driving power in government and how decisions are made and the famous notes he puts on the documents, action this day and so on. That energy and dynamism is what drives British policy and st strategic thinking through that particular period. And those around him who at times question kind of his mercurial nature that he sometimes goes off message or goes off in all different directions and so on, nonetheless see that that's crucial in driving things forward. And it's important for Britain, for Churchill, to portray the country as being one united and having that strength, despite the realities of what's going on around them. There's the bombing in London, there's a bombing around the country, there's severe economic pressure, the Battle of the Atlantic started to go really bad. It's deliberate economic pressure. As we come to this point, this kind of, it's a period of history that I think has been forgotten, the Battle of the Ports and the Industrial Cities. There is pressure here by the Luftwaffe to bomb the major industrial sites and to really stop Britain getting its protein and its resources through to starve us out of the war. Yes. And all of this is kind of kept a little bit secret from Roosevelt, I think. Yes, I mean, it's very important for Britain to portray itself as being a good bet to the Americans. If the Americans are going to invest, if they're going to devise schemes such as Lend-Lease and 50 destroyers and so on and so forth, that Britain doesn't show signs of weakness. So the Americans think this is worthwhile. They're going to get a return on their investment. Even if they don't have to fight, the British are going to hold the Germans in check in some kind of way and control them. So you're not going to get that kind of response from the United States if you show weakness. So a lot of the difficulties are played down as a demonstration of unity of purpose, that the country's together. It's questionable as to how much together it was. The different people reacted differently to the, the conditions of 1914-41. But the way in which the Germans then abandoned the idea in the autumn of 1940 of a direct invasion switched to this blockade and isolation and neutralization of Britain through the bombing of ports, through the attacks on industries and cities and towns and things in whatever manner they can. I and mean, he doesn't achieve much in this kind of the economic effects directly, but the perception is important, how that is managed. And particularly as well with the closing of the ports and the routes into and out of Britain, which is what Germany's trying to do with the U-boats and the aerial campaign and so on against ports and the, the, the routes through the Western approaches. Arguably, Britain comes closest to losing the Second World War is in that winter when the U-boats are strangling so much of the trade getting into and out of Britain, bringing in resources and food and so on, and the losses that the British are suffering in the Atlantic, hugely significant, and they can't manage those losses for very long. And so for a few months, Britain is teetering on the brink. And at the same time, you've still got to be portraying a position of strength to the United States and the wider world and the Dominions, of course, who are providing much in resources and personnel to carry on the fight. How do you make them believe that Britain can actually get through that? Obviously, Churchill's speeches and so on are obviously identified as being a, a crucial part of that. But there's more to it in terms of portraying Britain as a good bet, demonstrating, despite the realities of the, the difficulties Britain is confronting at that time, that Britain can actually get through that period. And Churchill and the Chief of Staff and the others in the Defence Cabinet do have a grip of the bigger picture, the longer term. Those resources and access to the 
global resources that the British have, if they can make it work, if they get through that difficult period of the winter of 4041, are there. They can have the use of the United States' huge industrial base. They have got big populations to draw upon to grow large armies if necessary to fight on the continent at some point in the future. And there is always a perception that Britain's ability to weaken Germany is hugely significant. They believe that Germany's about to run out of oil. They believe the German economy is on the point of collapse. They believe, or they argue anyway, that they that Germany's the wider population in Germany is going along with Hitler, but they don't truly believe in it. And they, a, a, a document is produced in September 1940 outlines how Britain will get out of the war, what the strategy is. And Churchill uses this as a device. One of this is about blockading the German economy and isolating. One of it is about subversion, so weakening popular support on the continent and in Germany, not necessarily through guerrilla warfare or anything, but through the growing of underground armies and weakening the political resolve of the peoples of Europe, even in and, Germany. And morale bombing as well? Is that part of weakening the public support for Hitler? Initially, bombing is more about targeting industry and economic targets, but went very quickly, the RAF work out they can't do it. They don't have the resources, they don't have the capabilities to do it, and it's a very heavy casualty. It was a technical decision. Yes. I was going through the documents, for, like Bomber Harris is going through, we cannot hit these with any level of precision, so we have to area bomb. Yes, those changes take place throughout 1941 as a growing realisation that it's not working. But there is also a belief that by targeting Germany through bombing, this subversion idea and blockade, you'll weaken Germany to the point at which you'll start to bring down the whole edifice that it's not really uh, a state with strong roots and that democracies have got greater capabilities and a military dictatorship is inherently flawed and will fall apart when you put great pressure on it. Now, that strategy, that grand vision that the, the British under Churchill developed in September 1940 is not one, actually, they truly believe that it's going to work. Churchill's wider vision is that they're going to have to draw on the United States at some point and other allies. And the persisting strategy, I think it's called, where you, you hang on in the hope that something's going to happen. You make your position as strong as it can be. You make your defensive position secure. But basically, you wait for the enemy to make a mistake. It happened in the past with Napoleon and so on. Now you're waiting for Hitler to make a mistake. And the, the, the weaknesses and the inherent contradictions of the Nazi state and Hitler's decision-making command structures mean they are probably going to make a mistake. And he's absolutely right, they do. A whole string of them, invasion of the Soviet Union without being prepared, declaring war in the United States, suddenly everything changes. And it's Churchill's role in getting to that position, which is fundamentally important in terms of understanding his impact and importance to the way the Second World War plays out. So Churchill's political wrangling, his place within the establishment for a long time. He knows it inside out. He knows how to perhaps manipulate it ever so slightly. His relationship with the United States, but also his grand vision and being able to see how the British Empire works and how it all pieces together and what you need to make Britain survive. All of these make Churchill the perfect wartime leader, the right leader at the right time. Absolutely. And it's that period that critical, pivotal period in the Second World War from the summer of 1940 through really to the middle to end of 1942 when the big decisions are made and the structure of the Grand Alliance is created and Churchill's role in that is absolutely pivotal. He has the vision in order to make that work. He has a relationship with Roosevelt. He has, surprisingly, a decent working relationship with Stalin in some ways. They don't really like each other, but they respect each other in terms of what they have to do. 
And so that works in terms of heading what becomes the Grand Alliance, and Churchill's role is crucially important. Yes, there are question marks about some of the decisions and strategies and ideas that Churchill tries to press at certain times, but he listens, for the most part, to those advisors around him. Brooke, head of the chief of the Imperial General Staff at the end of 1941, is a sage-like, smart guy working around Churchill to control... In charge of home defence. Yes, and building the strategy and the military relationships and, and seeing the way in which Britain will win and be part of the package of nations and policies and measures will uh, defeat Nazi Germany. But that relationship is crucial, but Churchill sees that he has to work with a group of people He's not a military dictator. Some have argued that when he becomes defence minister and prime minister in 1940, he's the closest we get to a military dictator since the time of Cromwell. There's something in that, but he also moderates, and he can be moderated by those around him. And that drive, moderated by those pressures and people working around him, are what's crucially important in that period up to 42. And he's the place of Churchill and Britain in the war declines in importance from 42, 43 onwards. The Americans start to become the dominant player and also the Soviet Union becomes the major force fighting the German army. Britain's role diminishes slightly, but he's nonetheless, right through to the end of the war, Britain, America and the Soviet Union are the powers which determine how the war is going to end and what's going to be the aftermath. And it's critically important that Churchill maintains that role and that position throughout the war and gets them eventually to the Potsdam Conference in 1945. One thing I find fascinating, John, is this comparison that's made between Winston Churchill and President Zelensky, someone who is most certainly in his darkest hour at this moment in time. He's drawn on the patter from Churchill's speeches. He knows how to play to his audience. He's even visited London to try and get his own air support bolstered. Is that a fair comparison between Zelensky and Churchill? There's something in it because Churchill in 1940, 41, was working hard on building Britain's reputation, forging links, drawing in support, resources and supplies from the wider world, particularly the United States. Churchill is constantly trying to draw the United States into the conversation about the Second World War, about how they can help, what they can do, and, and finding, ways, finding ways and deals in which they can get access to American resources and equipment and arms in order to carry on fighting, even though Britain's run out of money, they have no money, and the neutrality laws in the United States prevent the Americans from simply lending or giving resources to belligerent powers at that time. How do you get around that? So Churchill, like Zelensky, is going around trying to curry favour. He's trying to build alliances, trying to draw on the support of the wider world in order to continue fighting. And the, the rhetoric or the, the comments about how it's the world's war that is being fought in the Ukraine is similar to how Britain was selling the idea to the United States in 1940 41 that this is your war as well, that if you don't back us, you'll be next. And so that kind of idea and that kind of approach to growing those links, there are some similarities there. That's absolutely true. And the interesting thing there is I think that Zelensky has most certainly convinced Biden that that is the case. Think of the billions of dollars that have been invested. Was that exactly what Churchill did? Was the key relationship the fact that he was able to convince Roosevelt that Britain had to survive? Because Roosevelt could have easily just let Britain be absorbed by Hitler, giving America more time to either negotiate or at least get their industry and their military might ready. Churchill was critical in persuading Roosevelt that Britain was worth investing in, that you could actually do something. And in the same way, the Ukraine by throwing back the Russians in a few places and making some inroads into the Russian advances, has demonstrated that Ukraine 
is actually capable of fighting, of resisting the Russians, in the same way that the British in 1940 and 41 were convincing the Americans and the wider world that Britain could actually do something against the Germans. And the bombing campaign was critically important in that. That was a way in which Britain could demonstrate they were active, they were fighting, and they were taking the war to Germany. In the Mediterranean, the successes against Italians and so on might seem small fry in the grander scope of the Second World War. But at the time, it demonstrated Britain could fight, that they were a going concern, and that's critically important. Growing those relationships and drawing in those resources and support from the wider world, you've got to demonstrate that you're worth backing. And I think in both cases, they've managed to do that. Well, John, thank you so much. You've taken us through not only why Churchill was just so incredibly important for Britain, but what might have happened had he not been as good at his job as he was. Now, all of these counterfactuals and decision makings are in your new book where people can really make these decisions themselves. So what's the name of the book and where can we buy it? It's called Armchair General and it's about how you can defeat the Nazis. It's taken very much from an Allied perspective, how you defeat Germany and the Japan in the Second World War, and eight scenarios around key decisions and choices. And you can make your own choices as you go through it into the, what would have been the outcome if you'd done this, this particular policy if Halifax became prime minister. So yes, it allows you to explore how decisions are made, puts you in the position of those making those decisions at the critical moments in the war. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.